So she would carefully lift up the pan and pour it into a jar to save it. And the baking grease didn't go in the refrigerator. My mother just put it on the shelf because she knew that when baking grease cools down, what happens to it? It hardens, it solidifies. That is a sign that it, it's loaded with saturated fat. If it were corn oil, that's very low in saturated fat, so it's liquid on the shelf, liquid in the fridge. If it's olive oil, that's a monounsaturated fat, it's liquid on your shelf, solid in your fridge. But baking grease is solid anywhere, room anywhere at room temperature, whether it's cold, whatever it is. Now, but it's not just in baking, it's in dairy products, it's in meat. And the Chicago researchers noticed that some people ate relatively little of this, 13 grams a day, others ate more, about 25 grams a day. And they then said, what's your Alzheimer's risk with these two groups? I want to show you the numbers, here they are. The people who tended to avoid the bacon grease and the cheese and the saturated fat had a relatively low risk of Alzheimer's. But you see the difference there. The people who were tucking into it had three and a half times the risk of Alzheimer's compared to other people. Dramatic, okay? So where is this coming from? Well, take a couple of eggs. That's three grams of saturated fat. Take one slice of bacon. That's another gram. Uh, one chicken thigh. And I'm going to take the skin off it. It's about four and a half grams. One glass of milk, whole milk, another four and a half grams. And one small pizza for one. Twelve grams. Add it up. I'm suddenly in what in Chicago is the high risk group. Do you know anybody who eats that way? Everybody is eating that way these days. So it's not just Alzheimer's disease. You remember this condition, mild cognitive impairment? where the memory is just starting to slip a little bit. Researchers in Finland brought in over a thousand people. They were up in years already, and what they found was that some people ate relatively little bad fat, the saturated fat, others ate more. And they then looked at who developed this mild cognitive impairment, it's exactly the same thing. The people who tended to avoid it did well. The people who tended to eat a fair amount of saturated fat started losing their memory. You with me? Yeah. <laughs> but what about that gene, that ApoE epsilon allele? What, what if I got that? Aren't I doomed? Well, they looked at those people. Among people, every single one of these had that gene. And let's take a look at what happened. Some of the people had a low intake of bad fat, some had high. Let me show you the numbers. Here they are. Dramatic difference. Huge difference. In other words, even if you have that gene, if you don't eat a bad diet, you may never get this disease. This is the most important thing I'm going to say today. Genes are not destiny. There are some genes that are dictated. The genes that say blue eyes, brown hair. They give orders. You can't argue. You're going to have blue eyes. But the genes for Alzheimer's disease, they're not dictators. They're more like committees. They make suggestions. They say, you know, you ought to, you, you could get Alzheimer's disease. But you know what you could say to me? Wait, 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 wait. I am not going to eat that way, and this is not going to happen to me. Here's what this gene does. It doesn't give you Alzheimer's disease. What it does is it makes a protein, a microscopic protein particle that goes into the blood, and all it does is carry cholesterol from place to place in the body and in the brain and spackle it into different places. 
and it will affect your risk of heart disease, it affects your risk of Alzheimer's disease. But what if I'm not eating the bad fats? And so my body doesn't make a lot of cholesterol, and maybe that gene is effectively turned off. We've been doing this with diabetes. There are people who have diabetes running all through their families. They eat in a different way. The genes just stay dormant. We've seen this with cancer. Did you, did you know that there are genes for lung cancer? Some people have genetic traits that are at higher risk for lung cancer. What do the genes do? The genes don't cause lung cancer. What they do is they cause inhaled carcinogens to accumulate in the body, and they slow down the body's ability to eliminate them. What if I'm not inhaling smoke? What if I'm a non-smoker? The genes are unplugged, inactive, and irrelevant. So the point that I'm making is genes are not destiny. We may be born with different genetics, but foods make an enormous difference, okay? Oh yeah, what's that? Those are the trans fats. You know the word trans fats on labels as partially hydrogenated vegetable oils. Well, in Chicago, some people ate relatively little, 1.8 grams a day. Some people ate more, 4.8 grams a day. And let's look at their number. Huge. If you ate the donuts and all the other trans fats, your risk of Alzheimer's was increased by a factor of five. 500% more, okay? So, could it be that this is operating because it's raising cholesterol? I think that's part of it. It's not all of it, but that's part of it. Researchers at Kaiser Permanente, which is a big healthcare provider, especially in California, tracked cholesterol levels, and they showed that the higher your cholesterol, the higher your Alzheimer's risk. But the cholesterol levels that they tracked were when the individuals were 40 years old. In other words, they took a blood test, they said, you've got a high cholesterol, let's see what happens to you three decades from now. So this is important too. You don't get your first wrinkle when you're 85. How old are you? You don't have to be 25. Your skin starts to change. You don't get your first gray hair when you're 90. That can happen at 25, at 30, at 35. The brain is starting to change too. The arteries are starting to change. You can't see it, but it's happening. And the protection can be laid down at the same time, okay? So there are three steps in using power foods for the brain. The first is to skip the bad fats. The second is to knock out free radicals, and I'll show you what those are. And the third is to exercise your brain. I'm going to show you how. So, back on the bad fats. Let's say I'm in Chicago, and I'm eating the way other Chicagoans eat, and I'm high, high risk. Can I change that? Can I, can I get rid of some of those things? All right, I'm going to get rid of, I'm going to get rid of that milk. Who's had almond milk? Tastes okay, right? Well, it happens to have zero saturated fat. And let's see what happens to my wrist. It just dropped. That's good. So if the numbers in Chicago apply to me, I'm doing better. Is there something more that I can do? Can I change more things here? What can I get rid of? Bacon. Bacon? Okay. Alright, here it goes. Alright, no. The veggie bacon, it's sort of a liberal interpretation of the original. But it's not bad. Uh, let's get rid of those eggs too. Let's have a bowl of oatmeal instead. Uh, how about that chicken thigh? I'm going to get rid of that. We're going to have a vegetable sandwich. Let's see how it happens to my wrist. Lower. Pretty good. Uh, anything else I can do? Yeah, that process. What else? Pizza? 
Wait a minute. Can I have a pizza without cheese? Yeah. Do they sell those? Yeah. They do? Yeah. Where? Amy's. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll get rid of that. There it is. So there's the vegan pizza, no cheese. Uh, let's have pizza. our numbers. Well, I actually don't know because nobody in Chicago eats that well. <laughs> but there are some places where people do. In Loma Linda, California, there's been an interesting experiment going on for decades. It's the home of many Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah. And when I started my research career, I wondered why do Adventists get put under the microscope so much? I couldn't understand why they're always being studied. Well, I finally realized that Seventh-day Adventists, by their religious teachings, are supposed to not smoke not drink alcohol, avoid caffeine, and not eat meat. And almost all Adventists are very good at the first three of those. But some of them eat meat, some don't. So it sets up a natural experiment of health-conscious non-smokers who vary in diet. So they looked at a group of Adventists who were heavy meat eaters, and they showed that they're starting to slip as year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, year six, more and more of them are slipping into dementia, but the vegetarians had a measure of protection, okay? And that, those are, they may be the cheese pizza eating vegetarians, but at least the meat's off their plate, they're doing better, right? So what else is in those plaques? Well, in those plaques is beta amyloid protein, that's my sausage maker, cholesterol, and traces of iron, traces of copper, now why would that be? You need a little bit of iron for healthy blood cells. It makes hemoglobin to carry oxygen. You need that. But you also need some copper for healthy enzymes, but you don't need a lot of it. And the problem is, if I have a cast iron pan, and I left it on my picnic table for a couple days and it happened to rain, and I thought, oh, I left that outside, what's happened to it? It rusted. And rust is oxidation, and a penny will do the same thing. It gradually darkens, that's oxidation too, and that will happen in your body. So you ate a food that had iron or copper in it. The traces get into your body, they get into the brain, they start to oxidize. As they oxidize, they release chemicals called free radicals. Free radicals are innocent bystander molecules that lose electrons and become unstable, and they become like sparks that singe through your cells. They break through the connections between cells and gradually destroy your body. So where am I getting all these metals? How many people here have a cast iron pan? If you use your cast iron pan once a month, no big deal. But if you're using it every day, the iron gets into the foods and it gets into your body. If you're a woman before the age of menopause, I wouldn't worry about it because you have a little bit of iron loss with menstrual flow every, every month. But if you're a woman after menopause, or a man at any age, you're accumulating iron day by day by day by day. Anybody have copper pipes? Well, the water sits in your copper pipes, copper gets into the, the morning you fill your uh, coffee maker with this water, the copper is there and you drink it. Uh, meat, especially liver, loaded with both iron and copper, and surprisingly enough, multiple vitamins. The vitamins are good. They have vitamin B12. They have vitamin D. That's good. But they also add to the vitamin pill iron that you don't need because you're getting it in food. They're adding copper 
which you don't need because you're getting it in food. And they figure it's a selling point to say, we're going to give you everything you need in this pill, forgetting the fact that some things are double-edged swords, right? Now, the Centrum company has said, we get this. Uh, people over 50 should have this. It has zero iron. That's good. But that's the way vitamins should be at every age. And they shouldn't be giving you copper at all. I'm writing to all these manufacturers saying, clean it up. The vitamins are fine. It's the metals that are a problem. Now, there are some things that are helpful. Vitamin E is an antioxidant. It's like a fire extinguisher that puts out those free radicals. It'll make those sparks neutralize. And it's in spinach and mangoes and a lot of other foods, especially in nuts and seeds. And in Chicago, they looked at individuals who were consuming either very little vitamin E or a little bit more vitamin E. And I want to show you what happened to their Alzheimer's risk. The people who ate a lot of it did really well compared to the people who tended to neglect. With me? So what, what we're doing here is we're adding up all the different things I can do. All right, skip the bacon grease. That cuts my risk. Forget the donut. That's going to cut my risk. Eat the vitamin E-rich foods. That's going to help me. These are all tools that we can add together to help us. So it's in broccoli and spinach and sweet potatoes and things, but much more in the nuts and the seeds. Now, very important, food not when it comes to vitamin E. The reason I say that is if you took a walnut and you sent it to the laboratory and you said, tell me the vitamin E that's in there, they would say there's a whole range of different types of vitamin E. But if you sent a vitamin E pill, they would say, well, there's just one. Because the manufacturer can get away with giving you just one form of vitamin E and slap a label on it, and it's not particularly effective. But nature packed them all in, in a certain way that you can easily take advantage of. So what I suggest you might do is include nuts and seeds in your routine, but be careful. Did any of you know that cashews have heroin in them? I'm not sure if they have heroin in them, but I do know that when I open a packet, in about five minutes, I eat the whole thing. <laughs> then I want it again tomorrow. And I, I think I get addicted to them. Am I the only one? No. Well, so here's what you do. You want about an ounce a day. And pour it into your hand, whether it's cashews or walnuts or slivered almonds or sunflower seeds or sesame seeds. By the time it hits your fingers, that's more than an ounce. So stop. Then you take that part and put it on your salad or on your pancakes instead of eating it as a snack, and that way you'll be safe. Okay? Make sense? All right. So, what's a healthy diet? A healthy diet is the power plate. Fruits, grains, legumes. What are legumes? Beans. Beans. Beans, peas, and lentils. Things that grow in a pot. And vegetables. Okay? So, there are certain ones that I want to cheerlead for in particular. There's a B vitamin called folate. Folate comes from spinach, lettuce, kale, collards. The name comes from foliage, leaves. Give you folate. Folate is a B vitamin. It protects the brain. Vitamin B6 is in beans. Easy to remember. B6, beans, and bananas. And vitamin B12 is actually my one exception to the food not pills routine because it's much more absorbable in a pill than it is in food, especially if you're a little older, or if you have diabetes and are on metformin, or if you take an acid blocker, you'll have a lot of trouble absorbing B12 from food sources, but the, the, the crystalline B12 in a supplement is highly absorbable, no matter what. 
Now, why am I showing you these three vitamins? These are B vitamins. They all work together to do something very remarkable. They shovel out the factory waste from your brain. Here's what they do. Your, just like a factory produces waste that has to be removed, your brain cells and other cells in your body make something called homocysteine. This won't be on the test. But homocysteine builds up and it harms the brain. These B vitamins shovel it out and get rid of it. That's all they do. So at Oxford University, researchers brought in a group of people. They were already up in years. Everybody was over 70. Everyone was already having memory problems. They were all really saying, I am not myself. There's something really wrong with me. All the researchers did is they said, take these three vitamins. And they brought in a comparison group where they said, take this pill that was actually a placebo. You know what I mean? It's a dummy pill. It didn't have the vitamins in it. Nobody knew which was which. But then over a couple of years, they looked at their brain. And I want to focus on the middle part of the brain. Now, that hole in the middle is normal. That's a ventricle. And the size of it doesn't matter. That's just where the cerebral spinal fluid flows. That's totally normal. But the part to look at, I don't know if you can see, right around the inside of that, there's a little blue color. And that's atrophy. The brain is slipping away. Year by year. About 2.5% per year. And that was in the placebo group. They didn't do so hot. But in the B vitamin group, again, the size of the hole doesn't matter. But what matters is the atrophy was greatly reduced in this group, down to about a half a percent per year. So the point being that somehow these simple vitamins stop the brain shrinkage. And they then tested everybody's memory. And the people taking the dummy pills lost a little bit by the first year and a little bit more by the second year. But the people who got the vitamins actually started to gain their memory back a little bit. You with me? Okay, so some people will say, well, I'm with you. The, the Mediterranean diet I've been following, that's got a lot of vegetables. And you know about the Mediterranean diet, very popular nowadays. Yeah. Uh, but it's not just the vegetables, it's maybe pasta or chickpeas. And sometimes people say wine is, is part of it, um, which I guess is true. Uh, when I was in college, some of my roommates um, felt that they were following the Mediterranean diet very closely. <laughs> um, people who drink a glass of wine every day have about half the Alzheimer's risk compared to other people. Um, <laughs> however, before we all go out and have a party, the problem is there are First of all, if you have much more wine than that, your brain is going to get pickled fairly quickly, and you're not going to do very well. But there are also health risks of wine. The most serious is breast cancer. Even one glass of wine per day, if it's every day, measurably increases breast cancer risk. And if it's two glasses, three glasses, it goes up, 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 up. So researchers said, well, you know, it's true. Wine does seem to have that effect, but maybe it's not the alcohol. Maybe it's the grape that could be doing that. So they looked at people and just gave them grape juice. I want to walk you through this. This was the University of Cincinnati. They brought in a group of people. Everybody's having memory problems. Where are my car keys? The average age was 78. And they gave them Concord grape juice straight off the shelf, two cups a day. And what they discovered was that over about three months, about 12 weeks, their memory, their learning, their recall was measurably increased. Why? It's grape juice. It's not a medicine. Or, or, or is it? It comes from a grape. The grape is in the sun all day long. 
is getting exposed to the elements. And, and why doesn't it just shrivel up in a minute? The reason it doesn't shrivel is there are anthocyanins in the grain, which you can spot at 100 yards. Dark, intense, deep, purple color. And so the researchers said, wait a minute. Those anthocyanins are antioxidants. They protect the grape. They get into your bloodstream. We know they are absorbed. And they protect the body, maybe? If that's the case, it doesn't have to be grapes. It could be anything that has anthocyanins. Take a blueberry. Let's do the experiment again. Let's bring in a group of older folks that they've got memory problems. Let's give them blueberry juice. Same story. Better learning, better recall. And I want to tell you something. If you send your dog into a grocery store, the dog does not stop at the produce department and will not say, oh, what wonderful colors. Your dog doesn't register any of that because your dog is a carnivore. Same with cats. They're not interested in bright colors. Those of you who have cats, you know your cat likes movement, like your finger under a door. They are, they are mesmerized by those things. They are carnivores, and, and carnivores require movement. They don't need color. We are herbivores. And herbivores are attracted by intense colors because our bodies depend on them. The orange color of a carrot or a sweet potato, that's beta carotene. And our retina has been designed by nature to register that orange color very, very intensely. The red color of a tomato, that's lycopene, a powerful antioxidant. And our retina can see that. And the dark purple color, blueberries or grapes, they're not just there to look nice. This is part of our fundamental biology. And many of us go through life ignoring them because our culture takes us away from those things and puts those colors into M&M's or candy or the sign outside of a fast food restaurant. Look at the colors that are there to attract you into completely different kinds of foods. Okay? But anyway, by the way, it doesn't have to be a pint of blueberry juice. What if I just put blueberries on my pancakes in the morning or on my oatmeal, and I'll put a couple of grapes on my salad later in the day? The idea is simply to incorporate these foods into our routine. That's what nature had in mind for us. Does anybody eat that way? Yeah, they do. I want to show you something. This is Okinawa. Anybody ever been to Okinawa? It's, it's right at the bottom of Japan. But the dietary staple in Japan is an important thing to know. In Okinawa, it's what is called a blue zone. Have you heard of the, the blue zones? This is Dan Buettner's work with National Geographic. They took a map and they looked at where do people live to be 100 years of age. Okinawa is one of them. Another one is Loma Linda, California. Another one is Sardinia, which is off the coast of Italy, part of Costa Rica. And they discovered that these are places where people eat largely plant-based diets. And they are much more likely to live to 100 and often in great mental clarity. But the dietary staple in Okinawa, anybody know? It's not fish, oddly enough. It isn't, it isn't fish. It is not rice. It is a sweet potato. That's right. It's, and they have different kinds of sweet potatoes. It's a funny thing. Now, this is the woman in the middle of this picture. This picture was taken decades and decades ago. But she happens to be the mother of a friend of mine who moved to the United States and set up a Japanese restaurant that I'm quite fond of. But her mom, Masu, uh, lives in the same house she grew up in, in Okinawa. There she is at age 88. There she is at 100. Oh. And when you turn 100 in Okinawa, they do throw you a party. <laughs> but you have to share your party with everybody else who turns 100. <laughs> now, sailing by Okinawa and back in World War II on a U.S. destroyer was this guy. 
This is Ellsworth Wareham. And Dr. Ellsworth Wareham is a remarkable person. He didn't know Masu, but he all ate almost identically to the way she ate. Because he grew up in Alberta. He grew up on a farm. And they would say, Alberta, go milk the cows. I'm, just, I'm sorry, Ellsworth, go milk the cows. And he would come back in with his pail of milk, and they would say, you know, why, don't, why aren't you drinking the, the milk with the rest of us? And he says, oh, I saw where it came from. <laughs> Ellsworth, go out and get the eggs. And he came in and he saw where they came from, too. And he didn't want to have anything to do with it. What's remarkable about him, unlike most other people in Alberta, he became vegetarian very early in life. And he became a surgeon, quite a well-known surgeon, actually. He did a tour of duty in Vietnam. And then when he came back, he was decorated. That's him just to the right of President Lyndon Johnson. And then later on, he was uh, decorated again by Richard Nixon. That's him to, to the left of Richard Nixon. But th that's not what's remarkable. What's remarkable about Dr. Wareham was when the surgeons hit 65, they retired. When he hit 65, he said, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. I think I'm going to stick with this for a while. He hit 70. He hit 75. He was still operating. Um, he was the best surgeon in the hospital. And he said, you know, I can't do this forever. I, if I hit 95, I'm going to retire. <laughs> That's what he did. At age 95, he said, guys, I shouldn't be operating anymore. I'm quitting. He said, wait, 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 wait. The other surgeon said, we'll pay your insurance. You've got to stay here. You've got the steadiest hand, and you've got three times the experience that any of us have. We need you here in the operating room. At least stay and assist us. He said, no, I'm hanging it up. It's time for me to go. And he did retire. But I got to know Dr. Wareham, and I, I went and saw him. I took his picture. He's not quite 100 years old, and he's still operating <laughs> on his plants outside his backyard. Anyway, the point I'm making is these simple foods that happen not to have the bad fats in them, and that are high in the vitamin E and high in the anthocyanins, high in the protectors, they really do protect the brain if we take advantage of them. Now, are there extra benefits of avoiding the bad fats? Is it going to protect more than my brain? Well, it might. One gram of fat. A gram of fat, if I take a, a thimble, sewing thimble, and I start pouring oil into it, by the time it's about one-third full, that's a gram of fat. And a gram of fat has nine calories. But a gram of carbohydrate, I don't care if it's from bread, or potatoes, or rice, or spaghetti, it's got only four calories. So what if I'm avoiding all those bad fats? I'm trying to do it for my brain. Maybe other parts of my body will get better. I want to show you, this is a picture of Jean-Rémy, who lives in eastern Canada. And he sent me these pictures because he weighed 320 pounds. And he was diagnosed with pre-diabetes. <clears throat> and his, as fate would have it, his wife happened to have a copy of my diabetes book that some of you might have seen. And she gave him the book, and it did, did not say to cut calories. It didn't say you've got to go to the gym and wear spandex and sweat off the pounds. It said, we're going to make a qualitative shift in our diet. We're going to get away from the bad fats and all the foods that have them. And we're going to eat lots of vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans. And he sent me this picture. By the time he got to chapter 4, he lost 160 pounds. Wow. And when you set down that much weight, you suddenly have energy you never had before. He, this, this was not an exerciser. But then he, he discovered he really liked to get physically active. And he liked the way he looked and he liked the way he felt. Uh, let me show you somebody else. This is Jenna. 
she didn't have as much weight to lose as he did, but she decided to do the very same thing, to just change the type of food, not worry about the quantity. And she got her waistline back, her confidence back, but most importantly, she got her health back. So it really can make a dramatic difference to simply shift the contents of the plate. Now, I want to walk you through some things that are still controversial and that we don't yet know what the answer is. Uh, starting with aluminum. Have some of you heard that aluminum might be bad for the brain? Yeah, okay. We still really don't know the answer, but here's, here's what we know. We know. Uh, there was a study done in Britain, 88 county districts, they measured the aluminum in their water. There isn't any aluminum in the water that comes from a mountain stream. But at the municipal treatment plant in many cities, they add aluminum because it precipitates out the solids. And some of the aluminum is still there when it comes out of your faucet, unless they're careful and filter it out. So some counties had very low aluminum, some had high, and they noticed that the ones with a lot of aluminum had 50% more Alzheimer's risk. Same thing in France. The, the areas with a lot of aluminum in the drinking water had more Alzheimer's. Now, not every study showed this, but many did. Then when you looked into the brains of people with Alzheimer's, they found aluminum in those plaques, in those little meatballs. They had aluminum in them. And third, we know that aluminum is a neurotoxin. If a person works in a factory where aluminum is used, and they get an overexposure, it destroys neurological function. So, neurologists are still arguing about this. There are plenty of good neurologists who say, don't worry about it, it's not an issue, we don't think it's a problem. But there are others who say, wait a minute, it is a problem. Here's where I come in. Until they figure it out, I'm going to limit my exposure. And I encourage you to do that too. So where do you get it? It may come in water. It may come from aluminum pots and pans, or even aluminum foil. And it's it not foil wrapped around a sandwich, but foil that might have gotten in touch with something a little acidic, so the aluminum is dissolving into the food. Um, you can go to the store. There are two kinds of baking powder at every store. One that's got aluminum, one that says right on the front, aluminum free. It costs the same, very easy. Uh, pizza, there is often aluminum in the cheese. Yeah or in the crust. Read the label, it's, it's marked on the ingredients. Um, the little salt packets sometimes have aluminum added as an anti-caking agent, so on a rainy day it'll still pour. Um, my dad, growing up, had acid stomach, and he drank Maalox. And it was a long time before I realized the name is magnesium and aluminum hydroxide. Maalox, you're just, just drinking aluminum day by day. If he took Tums, there's no aluminum. If you use a deodorant, it has no aluminum. If you use an antiperspirant, it has aluminum. It goes into your skin. So the point, the point I'm making is you can decide, do I want to change my exposure? And I would encourage you to try to do that. Okay, so we're skipping the bad fats. That's step one. We're knocking out the free radicals. That's step two. Step three, we're going to exercise the brain. All right? So exercise is important. And I encourage everybody to go out and get your heart pumping up a little bit. And this works. At the University of Illinois, they brought in 120 people. And all they asked them to do was to take a brisk walk three times a week. And they then did an MRI of the brain. And you know what they showed? That brain shrinkage that we thought was part of aging reversed. 
and the brain started to expand in the memory areas, especially the hippocampus, which is Latin for seahorse. Very good. Who's had her vegetables today? <laughs> and their memory was better on testing. Okay. So how do I begin an exercise program? It's impossible to stick with. I have my own program that I would encourage you to try. First, arrive at the airport as late as possible. <laughs> Carry massively heavy Run for the plane, and you're going to get excellent exercise every time you fly. Now, if you want a more practical approach, what you can do is begin with a 10-minute brisk walk. Focus on your pulse. The idea is you don't have to do a 5K. You can. But the idea is just if your pulse elevates, your brain oxygenates. With me? Very simple. Just get your pulse up a little bit and do 10 minutes three times a week. Next week, 15 minutes three times a week. Week after that, go 20, 25. Once you're up to 40, 40 minute brisk walk three times a week, that's the level that has been shown to reverse brain shrinkage. Okay, so we're adding these things up. I'm avoiding the bad fats, I'm getting the vitamin E. I'm getting the anthocyanins. I'm lacing up my sneakers. I'm oxygenating my brain. You're getting power in your hands that is, has a very dramatic potential. But there's more. Mental activities. You've heard about this. That mental activities help the brain, whether it's intellectual activities, documentaries, newspapers. <laughs> Maybe not that one. Um, crossword puzzles, Sudoku, anagrams. Words, words are good. Um, there was a study in Quebec of individuals who were bilingual compared to people who are not bilingual. If you've got two words for everything, you've got so many more connections in your brain. Bilingual individuals uh, defer cognitive decline by about five years compared to everybody else. However, your high school French is no good. Unless you're using it now. Okay? You've got to be using those connections. If you're not, it doesn't work. Okay? Um, so, languages do protect the brain. Puts up Alright, um, I was sitting in a lecture. Do you know Dr. Dean Ornish? He's a medical genius. He showed that a plant-based diet can reverse heart disease. It opens the arteries up again, which we had thought was impossible, but it worked. Anyway, he was in a lecture, giving a lecture, and he showed this slide. And he said, if I focus, if I focus too much on myself, if I focus on, on I, I can be ill. But if I focus on the group, if I focus on we, I can get, I can be well. And I was struck by the, 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 how nice this message was, that you want to take advantage of a group to keep us on track. And I thought that was nice. But as I was thinking about it, I got all wrapped up in something he didn't want me to think about, which is, isn't that cool? There's words hidden in other words. And so the, the connections in your brain start firing, and you discover that you can see hidden words in almost anything. So, when you're seeing words in front of you, start to rearrange them, and it's kind of amazing. <laughs> I'm not sure that this really builds connections in your brain, but give it a try. All right, so there are companies that do this in an organized way. There's one called Lumosity. It's in San Francisco, yep. lumosity.com, and they'll make memory programs. Oh, hi, David. I remember what you ordered last time you were here. You had the, the spaghetti or whatever it was, then you get a tip. Um, so the idea is testing memory, reaction time, reasoning ability, how many words begin with D-I-G. They're, they're video games, but they are specifically designed to strengthen specific brain functions. And the idea is you do them five minutes a day. Okay? It builds the cognitive reserve. Very simple. Okay. Most important thing, sleep. 
Whether you're exercising your body, exercising your brain, you've got to stop. It's really important to stop. And the reason is, when you go to sleep, your brain says, thank you, that's great, you're finally asleep. All of the experiences you had during the day, everything that you learned is like a file folder thrown on your desk. And you had so many experiences during the day, there's a big jumble all over your desktop. And your brain says, okay, I'm going to sort this out while you're asleep. So the beginning of the night is what's called slow wave sleep. I'm putting EEG leads on your brain. These slow EEG tracings are as the brain is filing away all the things so you can find them tomorrow. And the second half of the night is REM sleep. You know rapid eye movement sleep? Your, your eyes are moving, you're dreaming, you're having little funny emotions in your dreams. Your brain is integrating emotions. It's also integrating physical skills, riding a bike, uh, playing your guitar, whatever, any kind of physical skill. That's the second half of the night. So what if I stayed up all night, as I used to, when I was an intern in the hospital, night after night after night? First thing is your memory will be terrible because your file folders have never been put away. You can't remember things. And your emotional control is terrible. You're grumpy, you're giddy, you're, you, you'll switch back and forth. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. So what I suggest you do is to go to sleep and you get an extra benefit. Your brain cells, you remember those sausage makers that are putting out the amyloid protein that gets into those plaques? Well, when you go to sleep, your brain reduces amyloid production. You stay up all night, that sausage maker never turns up. Okay. So, this is my most important medical device. When the clock strikes 10, I don't care how great the TV show is, I don't care how great your book is, close it, turn out the light, go to sleep. Kids do that. And they wake up bright and, and with better emotional control than if they're up all night. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, very easy. Wait, there's more. Um, this is Dwayne Gravelin. He was an astronaut, he was also a physician, is a physician, in Florida. Worked at NASA, and one day he was driving home, got there, and there was a woman outside his house. He got out of his car and he said, hello, can I, can I help you? She looked at him. She said, Dwayne, you don't know me. He said, no, but, but uh, there's something I can do. She said, Dwayne, I'm your wife. He did not recognize his own wife. She sticks him in the car, they race to the emergency room, and they're trying to figure out what could have gone wrong. They do test from of various vitamins and so forth. The only thing they could figure was this, Lipitor. He'd been taking a cholesterol-lowering drug for about a month, and he thought, could that, could that have hurt my memory? He stopped taking Lipitor, his memory came back 100%. But his cholesterol level went back up, so he started taking the Lipitor again at half the dose. Six weeks later, his memory was shot. Couldn't remember anything after age 12. He put the Lipitor carefully in the trash, and his memory came back. This was thought to be a complete fluke. After all, Lipitor is a safe drug. It does lower cholesterol, and it has a generally good safety profile. It, it, no, it, it does have risks. It, does, it can cause muscle disorders. It can cause liver problems. It can increase the risk of diabetes. But, aside from that, it's generally safe. Um, and the side effects are not terribly common. But the FDA did not take this report seriously until after about two or three hundred cases of people with memory problems related to Lipitor, the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. government has issued a warning saying it's not frequent, it doesn't happen a lot, but not, and other statin drugs 
will do the same thing. They can affect memory. Including individuals in nursing homes diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. They threw the Lipitor away, they cleared up, and they packed their bags and went home. Wow. Right, it's not just Lipitor. If you ever went to the hospital and you had a colonoscopy, and they say, this won't hurt too much, and whatever. You, you're done with the procedure. You go out and your loved one picks you up in the car, you're driving home, and they, your loved one says, I hope it wasn't too bad, and you say, you know, I, I actually don't remember anything after I walked into the hospital. I don't remember the procedure at all. While you were there on the exam table, they slipped a drug into the intravenous called Versed that wipes out your memory. So that when you go home, you won't say, oh, that was kind of uncomfortable, that was sort of a little embarrassing. You don't remember any of it. This is absolutely routine. And not just for colonoscopies, for almost any hospital procedure. And I'm not saying it's wrong. There are a lot of people who don't really particularly want to cherish the memories of the colonoscopies. <laughs> However, I do have my own opinion, which is that they should let you know they are about to toy with your brain. Because right now, they just, they just assume we can, we can mess around with it. Uh, if any of you ever take Ambien or similar uh, uh, sleep medication, be very, very careful. An extremely common side effect is your memory is just unhooked. People take this, this very popular sleeping medication. They go to sleep. They wake up about an hour later. And they get up and they think, yeah, I'm kind of in the mood for something to eat. And they look in the refrigerator, there's not much there. They find their car keys, they go to the nearest convenience store, they come back home, all kinds of... It makes you in a mood to party. And then you go back to sleep, and you get up in the morning, and you look at what's all in your kitchen. You say, who brought all this stuff here? <laughs> and it's... At first, the manufacturer denied that it had anything to do with memory. It's now absolutely routine. So be very careful. There are many, many medications that cause memory effects. I'm not saying that they're bad medicines. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is if you're having memory problems, the first place to look is your medicine cabinet. Very, very common. And also medical conditions, depression, thyroid problems, gluten intolerance. Most 90 plus percent of people have no problem with wheat. But about 7% of people do have a little fuzzy brain that comes from wheat or rye or barley. And there's no test for it. The way to do it is just avoid it for a couple weeks and see if you clear up, okay? So, let's check our scorecards. I can get away from the bad fats. Am I getting too much iron? Am I getting too much copper? Am I getting aluminum? Am I missing the micronutrients in vegetables and fruits? Am I sedentary? Am I getting adequate mental stimulation? Am I getting sleep? Are my medications a problem? These are all things that are so easy to control. The power plate is really going to be our guide. Vegetables and fruits and grains and legumes. And the healthiest diet skips the animal products completely. Throws them out. You feed them to your cat, you don't eat them yourself. Um, so how am I going to do that? If I follow what you're describing, this is a, a totally vegan diet. My, my, my family's going to make me live in the garage. Well, here's how to do it. If you want to give this a try, I would strongly encourage it. But the first step is don't change your diet. The first step is just try out the possibilities. See what you actually like that's, that fits these, these guidelines. So I take a piece of paper and I write breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack. And take a week and fill it out with foods that you love. 
So I'll have some oatmeal with cinnamon and raisins or pancakes with blueberries or whatever. The whole idea is just find what I like for breakfast and then think through what do I like for lunch. And maybe if I go out to dinner, are there things I can have? Well, let's say I'm at an Italian restaurant. Could you get a vegan meal at an Italian restaurant? Yeah. What could I have? Okay, I can have a glass of wine, I can have a salad, I can have the minestrone or pasta fagiole or lentil soup. Uh, what can I top my pasta with? Okay, artichoke hearts, mushrooms, tomatoes, uh, spicy tomatoes, okay, easy. Uh, espresso at the end, fine. This is not punishment, but I'm just going through the possibilities. How about Mexican? Would a Mexican restaurant have vegan choices? Okay, lots of bean burritos, veggie fajitas, beans and rice. How about Chinese? Yeah. That's even easier. Okay, rice dishes, vegetable dishes, tofu. Okay, so the whole idea is just what am I eating and what would I like? Uh, you could do it fast food. If that's where you're eating now, would Subway be willing to make you a vegan sandwich? Mm -hmm. Sure. Skip the meat and cheese, but have the lettuce and tomato and cucumbers and spinach and olives and hot peppers and red wine vinegar, and they'll toast it for you. They'll call it veggie delight. Uh, this is not the pinnacle of culinary art, but they'd be more than happy to. They'll make you a bean burrito, hold the cheese, that'll work. Okay, so, all right, I've got my possibilities, I know what I like. Now, step two is do a, a three-week test drive. All vegan, all the time, but just for three weeks. And the reason I suggest doing that is you want to see what it does for you physically. What happens to most people is they start to lose a little weight. If they've got diabetes, that's getting better. Their blood pressure comes down. Mental alertness starts to improve. Your mood starts to get better. And you notice something happens to your tastes. They start to change. And, and you won't expect this, but let me ask this group. How many of you ever switched from whole milk to low-fat milk or skim milk? Let me see hands. Okay. When you did, what was the skim milk like at first? Watery? didn't even look right, kind of blue. Um, how many of you got used to it? Okay, then did you ever go back and taste the whole milk again? What was that like? Too thick. It's like cream, right? Okay. Well, wait a minute. Your whole life it was fine. But when you get away from certain foods, fatty foods, your taste buds actually change and they no longer want the fat again. So if you go on a totally plant-based diet, a vegan diet, which is what I'm recommending, the first week it does seem too light. It really will. You're going to think, do I have to acquire a taste for folk music now? <laughs> Break out the tie dye. Okay. After about a week or so, it starts to make sense, and you find the food you like, and you like the way you feel physically. At the end of three weeks, if you went back and had a double bacon cheeseburger, you would discover you are so past that, and you're exploring new foods, and you're enjoying it. But if you tease yourself with a little bit of these foods every now and then, the taste buds never break away. So that's why I say do it all the way for three weeks. Uh, the last thing is if you want to use transition foods, you can. I'm talking about uh, veggie sausage in place of regular sausage, veggie bacon instead of regular bacon. You don't need them, but for many people, they are a bridge to healthier eating. Okay. Got some resources that I'd suggest you might take a look at. We have a number of books that all have recipes, and they all touch on different issues. Uh, give them to a friend instead of a box of chocolates. Um, have any of you done our Kickstarter program? Uh, this is a fun online program that is free. And you go to pcrm.org and you put in your email address, and we will not spam you, but what we do is at the beginning of the next month, we send you an email. And it comes from Alicia Silverstone, or some other Hollywood celebrity, and there, here are menus, here are recipes. Here's a little short cooking video I want you to see, and here is the link to talk to everyone else who's doing the Kickstart program. And at any given time, I might have 20,000 people doing it at, together. 
So you feel like you're part of a group, you're swapping recipes, you're swapping problems, challenges, successes. And that's the Kickstarter. It's fun. PCRM.org, totally free. It is in, oh, we have an app, too. Um, and it's in English. It is in Spanish. It is in Mandarin. It's, uh, it's also in English for the Indian subcontinent. And it's also in Japanese, uh, coming out shortly. So that's all at PCRM.org. Um, and for any health professionals in the audience, doctors, nurses, dietitians, let me invite you to come to Washington July 19th and 20th. I'm hosting the International Conference on Nutrition and the Brain. It's my medical school, the George Washington University and the Physicians Committee. You'll get 12 hours of continuing medical education. And our goal is to move this battleship. Right now, heart disease is treated with pills and surgery. Diabetes is treated with pills. High blood pressure is treated with pills. Alzheimer's disease is treated with pills that frankly don't work very well. What we need to do is change this. Instead of thinking of medications as conventional medicine and a diet change as alternative, we need to turn that around. So if a condition is caused by foods, then changing the foods ought to be the first thing we do. That's our treatment. And if that doesn't work, then there are medications that sometimes do play a role. That's the alternative therapy. And that's what we're trying to change. So please do join us in Washington. The last thing that I just want to say is I hope this is useful for you. But the most important thing is the next generation. Kids today eat diets that are unprecedented. And the degree of childhood obesity and childhood health problems is unprecedented too. So we need to start by changing our own diets. And there are issues with it. You'll find that it's not always easy. You'll hit a bump in the road. You'll goof up. You'll find yourself addicted to something a little bit. Don't worry about it. Forgive yourself. This is not morality. It's just plain old biology. So play with a healthy diet. Get to learn about it. But then share it with everybody you know. Share it with kids. Share it with schools. Share it with clubs. Share it at your business. If we make enough noise, I am convinced that we can take power into our hands and we can change the health of the population overall. Thanks very much. For a few questions, if people have something that they'd like like to ask, and if, if other people can't hear it, I'll repeat. Yes, please. Uh, um, the saturated fat in coconut oil. Everybody hear that question? Coconut oil. Um, a lot of people are talking about coconut oil, saying it's it's maybe healthy. If you look at coconut oil, it's scary because it's it's this thick, waxy solid. It's just like a candle, and it's heavily, heavily saturated fat. But some people have started to report there may be health benefits from it. I honestly have to say, I cannot yet separate what's science versus what is marketing. So I am not yet singing the coconut oil song. There was a question right behind you, yes. Yes, another question on paleo diet. The paleo diet. Everybody know about the paleo and the paleolithic diet. The idea is that we are naturally wearing animal skins, running down on the field with a spear killing a mammoth and eating a mammoth, and so that's the natural diet for us. Um, but we are not naturally raising grain because that requires technology, and so, so what we ought to be doing is eating things we could pick with our hands and meat. I think it's a romantic fantasy. And here's why I say that. Is that human, first of all, if you look in your cat's mouth, wait for your cat to yawn, you discover your cat has 
these sabers going down, these long canine teeth. Then go to the mirror and look at your own teeth. Your canines are no longer than your incisors, and that change occurred three and a half million years ago or more. So we are not naturally carnivores. And uh, you can walk through the, all the rest of human anatomy. We are great apes, whether we like it or not. And we are very good with picking things with our hands. And it wasn't until the Stone Age gave us tools that we could start scraping the meat off bones. And I asked, I put this question to Richard Leakey, the famous paleoanthropologist. He said, how did meat-eating begin? He said he thought that the Stone Age bringing us tools allowed us to sneak in after a carnivore, a true carnivore like a lion, has left some bones with a little meat on it, and we would scrape that off. And then eventually we learned we could kill animals ourselves. But we have pre-Stone Age bodies, which is why meat eaters to this day have a higher risk of colon cancer, heart disease, and other things compared to others. So um, it, it doesn't mean you, that you can't ever buy meat. If you buy meat, if you take a little bit of meat and cook it thoroughly and cut it into small bits and put it on a little plate and set it on the floor and call your cat over to you, <laughs> that would be okay. Yes, um, so the question is about coenzyme Q. Do you, do you mean is it helpful? Yes, it's a free. People are testing coenzyme Q10. Um, I am not yet impressed by its ability to either prevent or treat Alzheimer's disease. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's harmful, but I'm not yet seeing enough benefit to to, to recommend it. But stay tuned. Hopefully, we'll know more soon. Yeah. Here's your question. Um, what's your on a raw vegan diet? What about a raw diet? I think it's perfectly fine. Um, it's, it's pretty clear to me that we didn't evolve with sterno. Um, so, so eating raw foods is, is certainly natural and every other animal does that. What cooking does is it allows you to greatly increase the variety of food. So something like cauliflower or broccoli is, is more challenging to digest. Um, and when you cook it, then it becomes more, more digestible. And something like rice is pretty much inedible unless it's cooked and I'm convinced it's totally healthy. But people who go raw, I think it's perfectly fine. Do take vitamin B12, whether you're raw or, or anything. I think everybody should take B12. I think it's A-OK. -okay. Uh, yes, please. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. What do you take on fermented dairy products? Fermented dairy? I think they're just like other dairy products. <laughs> yeah. Um, nature devised milk for a calf. I know this sounds shocking, but it's true. Uh, yeah. Milk is always species-specific, so, so milk for a cow is different from milk for a horse, different from milk for a rat, different from milk for a human. And weaning is absolutely universal. Every single animal, every single mammal suckles and then stops. And it's good that they stop, because milk is loaded with saturated fat, whether it's fermented or not. It has proteins that are often allergenic or, or sensitizing in various ways, and it also has hormones in it. Um, which milk drinking men have much higher risk of prostate cancer in large epidemiologic studies compared to others, which is exactly what you'd expect if you're taking a hormone preparation designed to make a calf grow. So I know it's culturally normal, but nature can't figure out what we're doing. Yeah, we know already that's kind of what nature wants to say. So, yes, please. When you talk about iron, what about pigs who have a little iron? How do they take, can they take a supplement? Okay, the what about children who are low in iron? Can they take a supplement? Yes, they, they can take a supplement. But before I do that, what I always look at is, is why are they low in iron? Because children shouldn't be low in iron, and neither should adults. Um, if you're eating vegetables, green leafy vegetables or beans, and kids will eat them. They may be afraid of cooked spinach, but they'll have it on a salad or whatever. 
If they're getting those foods, they're, they're getting adequate iron, including vegetarian and vegan kids that get plenty of iron. But why would a kid be low? Um, you do want to have a medical evaluation if there's some occult bleeding going on or something. You want to be aware of that. That's, a, that's an issue for more for adults, but sometimes for kids. If a child is drinking milk, this goes back to your question, uh, milk reduces iron absorption by about 50%. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of anemic kids just take milk milk, and they, they do fine. Um, so those are, those are the big issues. And then I would just make sure that they're getting their, their beans and their greens, and, and they will, for the most part, be fine. Um, there has been a move in a very naive way by some pediatricians to say, give babies red meat um, as one of their first foods because it'll give them all the iron they need. The first reason that's a mistake is very few children are iron deficient. Number two, you're setting up a lifetime of risk. And in my view, it's malpractice to follow that guidance. It started out in the US and it's spreading to Canada. It is a complete mistake. And I, we are trying to stamp that out. Um, so anyway. We'll see if we succeed. Time for a couple last questions. Yes. You mentioned with sleep, uh, 10 p.m. Is there much of a difference between a 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. versus, say, midnight to 8 a.m.? Okay. Um, if you are awake during the day, then it's good to, to make sure you're getting sleep fairly early on. If you stay up later, well, we, we find that a number of metabolic things tend to go wrong, and people weigh, actually weigh more, even if they're getting the same amount of sleep, but it's shifted later. On the other hand, if your whole diurnal very, uh, schedule is shifted later, you're doing night work, for example, and you're completely accommodated to it, then it's okay. Uh, last question, yes, please. Uh, I was wondering, my dog's allergic to corn, and I was wondering if, there are any, if, if there's any real problems with corn out there, number one. And number two is, is I was wondering about pesticides, because there's so many of our fruit and vegetables that have pesticides. Is there a way that we could soak them, or kind mm -hmm. of because I'm not buying completely organic? Yeah, uh, these, these are terrific questions. Um, corn by itself should be fine. Uh, some people are sensitive to corn. We're doing studies now on rheumatoid arthritis and on migraine. And we're finding that some people react, dairy is the biggest thing that people react to. But some people will react to corn or they might react to citrus fruits or nuts or something like that. Um, a lot of corn in the US is GMO. But if you buy organic, by law, it cannot be GMO. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It, cannot be, it cannot be if it's labeled organic. Um, so generally, you should be okay with with that. So you got a second question? It was the pesticides. Okay. Yeah. How can we... No, I don't, I don't really think that soaking is going to get rid of it. Um, where it matters more is certain foods are grown with more pesticides than others. For example, um, an apple, very often pesticide treated, a potato less so. Um, and you'll, if you go online, you'll see lists that are published of which are the most heavily pesticide treated foods. But I would buy organic whenever you possibly can. I think it's, it's really a good idea.